This episode is brought to you by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, the only study Bible built on biblical theology. Marvel at the big story and savor every detail. Learn more at www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Hey, brother. Welcome to episode 105 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're back at it. We are. You know, I I'm, had this experience last week that maybe you can resonate with, but probably not. So just so everybody knows, I recorded a full hour-long episode with Matt Butts, and I also destroyed the audio from that. So that's why you guys got <laughs> a sermon from me last week. Um, so thank you, everybody who bore with us and is willing to come back, even though last week was a little, a little bit strange. Yeah, and that kind of feeds into my affirmation for this week, because I was last week on the left coast in California for my sister-in-law's wedding. And I've never been that far west. Have you been to California before? Uh, I haven't been to California, but I've been to uh, Oregon. So I've been all the way to the to the ocean on that side. So first I learned that my geography is horrific because for whatever reason, when my wife was putting together the itinerary for traveling, for some reason in my mind, I thought this was like a two hour flight. And she was like, <laughs> no, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, I thought it was because I'm not a huge fan of flying, but uh, it was a little bit longer than that. But to get to my affirmation. What I was impressed with was the weather is really nice there. It is. Like exceptionally nice, like yeah. a whole nother world nice. Like I kept looking at my forecast weather app and it finally just said to me, stop it. It's going to be sunny forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really is. It is. So- Southern California. You guys were in like San Diego or like Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, outside LA. Yeah. yeah. Well, that part of the country, it's just... It's the perfect weather all the time, unless the ground is shaking and falling out from underneath you. <laughs> but the weather itself is pretty, pretty stable. I was really kind of blown away by it. So for all those people on the left coast, you've made some really decent life decisions. And I affirm that. Yeah. Until your house shakes off its foundations and falls into the ocean. There is that. Yeah, but, but outside of that, yeah. it's a great place. <laughs> then you just surf. So it's fine. That's how <laughs> it works, you just right? surf instead. <laughs> yeah. That's how it works, right? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, something like that. How about you? So I'm affirming, this is a strange affirmation, um, just hard apple cider. So there's this little um, farm pat, like orchard called Patch Orchards near us. And Ashley and I went there for a corn maze uh, a little while ago. And we had a sample of their hard cider and it was absolutely delicious. And so we went over there yesterday. We bought like a big growler of it. So I've been enjoying that a little bit here and there. And it's just really good crisp. It tastes almost like an apple wine. It's just so good. Hmm. And that's very festive of you. Yeah. It's the air is cool. The leaves are coming down. I'm wearing a sweater. It's, it's glorious. This is, <laughs> I know that they say that uh, great. Christmas is the most wonderful time of year. But that, first of all, the regulative principle doesn't allow me to say that. So I will say <laughs> that fall is the most wonderful time of the year. Hands down. Amen to that. Yeah. So do you have any denials or am I just going straight to my denial? Because it's a doozy. 
Is it a great one? Well, let me deny this. So for all that great gushing that I just did about California, the only thing that was like sticker shock to me was paying $3.80 oh, yeah. for a gallon of gasoline. Yeah. I was like, what is happening here? But then somebody said to me, that is the tax for the nice weather. And I was like, all right, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Prices can be pretty outrageous out there. Yeah. It was well, again, like a whole nother world, but definitely should check it out. Yeah. It was an enjoyable time. Yeah. So now I'm really curious about how big and extensive this denial is that you have. So I'm going to do this in a slightly opaque way. So I am denying short, <laughs> Even better. short theological memories. And the reason that I say this is um, I have been listening to John MacArthur's sermon audio, um, which I can't say that I enjoy, but it's been instructive and useful. And we sometimes think about the Lordship salvation controversy, and we did an episode on this. I'll put the, the link in the show notes. Like it was this controversy that happened back then. Right. And when Reformed people point out like the problems in John MacArthur's articulation of what faith is and, and the Ordo Salutis, sometimes we're met with this um, like pushback where maybe they point to like an article on the thing or like the second edition of uh, the gospel according to Jesus. And they're like, well, you know, he, he read the critiques and he adjusted his language, but I was listening to a sermon and I'm going to go back and get the exact quote. I don't have it. So I, I don't want to say this as an exact quote, but he said something about something along the lines of if we have a heart that desires to be obedient God will save us. And he said something also along the lines of like, we are saved by a repentant heart. And so the problem with that is that it's a hundred percent the wrong order of things, right? right? So, so we don't have a repentant heart and then God saves us as a response to that. We are uh, saved where our, our salvation is begun by God and the granting of a repentant heart is actually part of our sanctification, which comes after justification, the ordo salutis. So sure. the reason I tie this to short, sort of short theological memories is that this was not that long ago. Um, Almost all of our listeners were probably alive when this controversy was happening. We were all young, but we were all alive when this controversy was happening in the 90s. And we treat it as though like it's done and over with and everybody's happy and everything's fine. But there are still some really serious problems in the articulation of the Lordship teachers like MacArthur or Paul Washer um, or David Platt, where, where there still is this confusion between... Uh, what faith is and how works plays into that. And, you know, I'm not going to say, and I wouldn't say this isn't just me being political or diplomatic. John MacArthur is a, blo a brother in Christ. He loves the Lord. He's He affirms salvation by faith alone. But there's still some really, like, firm confusion in what he says about how how salvation is actually wrought in our lives. And I just, right. I, I'm just denying those short memories because we have this tendency, especially in an internet age, right? This ties into like the EFS controversy. Nobody's really talking about that anymore, but we have this short memory where we, we sort of like things flare up. There's like a flurry of activity. And then all of the sudden it's over. Like when's, I don't hear anything about Andy Stanley anymore. Why aren't we still talking about Andy Stanley? Like there's, there's these things that come up and then they go away in this really quick fashion. And I feel like we would do better to have sort of a, a longer, this is going to sound terrible, but we should stretch these controversies out a little bit more because right. I feel like we end up kind of like rolling over the issues and we, we come to this 
fake sort of faux resolution of it, but we don't actually have a resolution. So yes, MacArthur changed some language in his second edition of Gospel Changes Everything. Yes, Phil Johnson has said um, that 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 was was not exactly what he meant, but you can still listen to Grace to You and on a on a fairly regular basis hear the same kind of language that was troubling to people like Mike Horton and Ken Rillbarger and all all the people who were critical, you know, in the 90s when this was happening. So we won't, we don't love controversy for the sake of controversy, but we should be willing to stand in the midst of controversy until the controversy is actually settled. Um, and I think right. far too often we're we're quick to seek reconciliation when we have to gloss over some significant differences to do so. That's a really great denial, actually, because it sounds like what you're saying is we need to have a larger or a longer theological attention because exactly. the internet age makes everything a flash in the pan, but it's a flash in the pan, not because it gets resolved. It's just because then we're onto the next shiny object right. that garners attention. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's, you're right. The things don't get dealt with, but we just lose our focus on them. But if you go back to hear his teaching regularly, you're going to find it's basically marinated in that perspective. Right. Yeah. And, and some of it is, you know, he preached this so passionately for so long that even if his theological position has changed, which I'm, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it's changed all that much, but even if it has, that language is so ingrained into the way that he speaks about salvation that it continues to come out. And yes, we want to hold people accountable to what they actually believe and what their theology actually says, but we also have to hold people accountable to the actual words they're saying, especially when they're submitting that for public teaching. Cause if I, if I was a, a new Christian, um, like many people were, you know, Todd Friel, I was absolutely convinced that repentance came before justification because I listened to Todd Friel. But then right. I started reading and learning about it, and I see that that's not really the way it goes. New Christians hear this, and all of a sudden, they're convinced that they can't be justified until they have an obedient heart. Well, an obedient right. heart can't come about until after we're regenerated and made holy, made clean. So so you, you screw that up, and, and it really does become just a court of a, a raw legalism because we're, we're convinced that we can't be morally upright. We can't be justified until we've come to this position where our heart has been made new. And this is why people like MacArthur get compared to Roman Catholicism because it's this internal, this internal reality that has to happen before justification can happen. That isn't, isn't biblical. So, and, and, right. you know, when he was confronted with these, like he said, well, yeah, that's not the, what that's not what I meant, but he's continuing to say it. And that's, that's, what's troubling. And for the thoughtful person, for the one who's trying to process that, I can definitely see how that would be an additional burden because whenever I'm having a conversation with somebody who's ma- basically making that argument, aside from the fact that we're saying, well, you've just gotten the whole order reversed. Even if I can grant to them, well, let's say that that does in fact come first, repentance is necessary. How much contrition is necessary? Can we ever be contrite or really repentant enough that God would say, yes, I forgive you? Like, there's no way that I can be repentant enough. It's it's literally impossible. So it has to be a work of God first and foremost. You're absolutely right on about that. Yeah. So I know that that sounds like we were just leading into an episode on Lordship Salvation, but we're not. Switcheroo. So it is... It's heresy cast heresy this week. Cast. We're not saying Lordship Salvation is a heresy, even <laughs> though we think it's wrong. So, Jesse, what heresy are we talking about this week? Oh, man. So this is a bit of, we were just talking about this. This is going to be pretty epic, right? I yeah, gonna, it is. Like, there should be, like, battle music. And, yeah, this yeah. should come with, like, a Surgeon General's warning. Because I think we're going to hit on a lot of different stuff. But it's all kind of stemming from docetism. Right. 
So docetism comes from the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem or to think. And it all boils down to this idea that although Christ appeared to be or seemed to be human, he wasn't really fully human in the way that we are. So there's a variety of errors that fall underneath this umbrella in one way or another. And we may come back and and explore some of these in a little bit more depth, but they're all kind of breathing the same air. So we have the era of Apollinarianism, um, which is named after Apollinaris uh, in the uh, third and fourth century. And he basically argued that um, the, the, the person, a human person was split into three parts. There was the body, the soul, and the reasonable soul. So right. um, an easier way to think about that would be like there's the physical part of a human and there's the there's the the spiritual part of a human and then there's the rational part of the human. So the it was the the body, the spirit and the the nos or the mind. Um and what he argued is that in Christ you have a body, a human body, a human spirit and then the logos, the the second person of the trinity kind of comes in and fills the place in that person that the the mind or the reasonable soul would have. Right. So Jesus lacks a human reasonable soul. We also have later coming later um, in the uh, 5th century, we have an error called uh, Eutychianism. And what Eutychianism argued is that since the divine nature is infinite and the human nature is finite, that although the human nature is truly present and it's a complete human nature, it gets kind of swallowed up into the um, divine nature. And the analogy he uses is it's like a drop of vinegar in the ocean. So technically, when you put that drop of vinegar in the ocean, it does change the chemical makeup of the ocean. But that change is so minuscule that you can't even see it. You can't notice it. There'd be nothing to perceive. And it doesn't change anything about how the ocean operates, right? It's not like you put a drop of vinegar in the ocean and a bunch of fish start dying or something like that. Right. So what, what these all boil down to, and then there was a lot of just docetism, like that doesn't really fit either of those categories where, you know, Jesus just wasn't really fully human. Um, anywhere from Gnosticism, which we'll talk a little bit about specifically, that kind of argued that Jesus was like a phantom. He just sort of appeared to be human. He was like a ghost that took on human appearance um, to just other ways of explaining that Jesus only appeared to be human, right? He was fully God and he... He just sort of like tricked the people who were around into thinking he was human. Right. That That's a pretty good summary of all those right on. <laughs> yeah, I need to take a breath. So, so Jesse, before we get started into kind of like explaining all the ins and outs of these, what's the sort of overarching problem? Why, why is this a problem theologically for us if Jesus isn't really human? So here's the funny thing. When I was thinking about this in terms of what we were talking about, this one for me was like the easiest of all we've spoken about because it just goes so strongly against the entire gospel. Yeah. I mean, just writ large, right? I mean, like we we sometimes have kind of gone into some technicalities on different kind of more nuanced versions of different types of heresies. But this one just gets right to the center of the fact that basically we're saying we're denying the, the effectiveness of the resurrection of the death of Christ, of any kind of remedial effort that was applied to us on behalf of the fact that we are human beings. So it right. really strikes right to the heart. Like this should be the kind of thing you, you hear if you have any kind of decent theological training and say, like, this sounds totally wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And what happens is, um, you know, heresies kind of 
wane and wax uh, with the culture. So sometimes they they just they just push against our instincts. Right. So at some eras in the church, docetism just pushes against our instincts. So coming out of liberalism in the 20th century and the 19th century, where really the emphasis is on Christ's humanity, right? Jesus is just an elevated moral teacher. That was uh, liberalism in the 20th century. Uh, the divinity of Christ was really sort of un, undiscussed. When it was, it was sort of pushed to the side. So coming out of that with the emphasis on humanity, we're actually in a really good place to see the error of um, docetism because we've been getting this picture of Jesus that's so humanized and the divinity of Jesus is so diminished that looking at it and going, well, he wasn't really human just doesn't make sense to us. But at other eras during the church, think like the high middle ages where Jesus was so elevated in terms of his divinity and his humanity was so diminished that that was actually where we get the the cult of Mary worship is Jesus is so removed and detached from humanity that Mary has to sort of fill in as a mediator. All of the reasons that we say Jesus has to be human, which we'll get into Mary has to fill those roles because the church has pushed Jesus's divinity so much to the front that um, he no longer is a suitable mediator for us. Right. So it, it's what's important for us, speaking of um, short theological memories or lo- long theological memories, it's important for us to recognize that even though a particular heresy may seem sort of ridiculous to us right now, um, like docetism, frankly, seems a little ridiculous to most of us because, of course, Jesus was human. And most of the heresies that we push against, like Jehovah's Witness theology, actually are emphasizing his humanity. Um, it's important for us to look at these because it won't be long before this heresy comes back around. And in fact, it actually has started to come back around in a lot of Yeah, that's true. Ways. I agree with that. I think so much, so many heresies really stem from this concept that we somehow need to protect God when God doesn't need to be protected. So to your point, right. particularly in those time periods, there was an emphasis on the, the holiness of God. It was totally unthinkable. And it really is scandalous that God would actually take upon human flesh. And so that led either to like severe asceticism, like punishing the flesh or just straight up licentiousness right. since the physical has no connection with like the eternal. So I, I really see this as we're trying to say, well, we need to protect the fact that God is holy and spiritual and separate and uncharted and set apart from us. And so therefore we're going to say, but because of that, that Jesus really couldn't really be human because we want to really uphold the fact that God is super holy and God doesn't need to be protected by right. it like that, especially when he's made it clear in the scriptures that that's, uh, that he has in fact given us his son. So I like that point because I think what has happened in our culture now is because it's so scientific based, it's easier to say, well, Jesus wasn't really God because that's the frame of mind that we have. Whereas if you can flip that or reverse it, it does make sense that there'd be this idea that we really need to somehow make sure that we're emphasizing that God is really perfect and totally different than us. And therefore, how could he take on human flesh, which seems to be at its root, very sinful. Yeah. So I want to, as we usually do, I want to read a little bit from the Westminster Shorter Catechism to kind of set the bar for what uh, orthodoxy is. And what's really, um, what's great about this is that there's not any part of Christendom, if Christendom's even a thing, there's not any part of Christianity, even groups like Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, that some of our listeners would say fall outside of Christianity because of soteriological errors. 
there's not any part of Christianity that disagrees with this. So I'm going to read it's questions 20 and I'm starting with 20 because I think this is really important through 22. So question 20, question 20 says, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer is God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. Question 21, who is the redeemer of God's elect? Answer, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And question 22 says, how did Christ being the son of God become man? The answer is Christ, the son of God became man. And here's the important part. Not that the rest isn't important, but here's the main part. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. And the the larger catechism in this same basic question, instead of saying um, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, it says conceived of her substance. And that's an important um, important thing to add as well. So the reason I started with question 20, though, is because the divines here are very conscious of the fact that this is connected to our right. salvation. We cannot divorce Christology from soteriology. And that has often been been something that people try to do in the past. And what that does is a, a disconnected Christology from our soteriology almost always ends up in two places. It ends up with an unbiblical understanding of salvation, usually such that we are working our way to heaven. And it ends up with an unbiblical understanding of Christ because the two disciplines are interrelated. The Christ who saves us the way the Bible describes has to be fully God and fully man, truly God, truly man. And only the God, the God man who is truly God and truly man could save us the way the Bible describes. So if we don't take those two, those two aspects of systematic theology and pair them together and keep them always right next to each other, always connected to each other, we lose both, uh, both as orthodox positions. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was saying, you know, this strikes at the entire heart of the truth of the gospel. Because, and we can think about this very logically, if Jesus did not have a real body, then he didn't really die. And I think many of the heresies you mentioned earlier in the cast would teach that his suffering on the cross was just an illusion then. If he had no physical body, right. he could not have risen bodily from the dead. And without the actual death and resurrection of Jesus, we don't have any salvation. We're still in our sins. I mean, that's what Paul says. That faith is entirely futile. So this is just a cascading effect. You knock over that first domino, everything falls apart. And not to mention that this is also, those heresies would also deny the ascension of Christ because he had no real body to make the ascent. So right. this is why, you know, my first reaction was, wow, this is just really totally against everything that the gospel presents as our firm foundation as Christians generally. It just all goes away. It right. all falls apart. So this is really particularly dangerous. But like you said, it's not that it's totally gone, even from our modern culture, even from evangelical circles, which I think we'll talk about. There are some remnants. There are things yeah. that kind of creep in, even into our thinking that are kind of docetic in their kind of frame. But... You're yeah. right. This is really the thing that goes against everything that is at the center of the gospel. Like what is, what good news is left? Is there any good news left? Exactly. After that? Have you take that away? Yeah. 
I mean, there's not because a Christ who's not human can't right. save humans. Right. We've talked about this before, and I always forget. One of these days, I'm actually going to look it up before we start recording. But I always forget which one of the Cappadocians fathers said it. It was one of the Gregories. I think it was Gregory of Nyssa. But he was the one that said, probably, um, whatever is not assumed right. is not healed. And this was in response to the uh, Apollinarian controversy. And what he's saying is that if Christ only takes on a human body and only takes on a human spirit, but fails to take on the human mind or the human reasonable soul, then all of the corrupt reasonable souls that are out there remain corrupt because they're, they can be united to Christ's body. They can be united to Christ's spirit, but they cannot be united to Christ's reasonable soul. Now we might quibble a little bit with um, that threefold distinction of the person. I, I don't know any, um, I don't know any modern uh, reformed thinkers that hold to that same trichotomous view. There are some that hold a trichotomous view, but the point is that there's a there's a physical part of Jesus and there's a spiritual part of Jesus. And if Christ didn't take on a human physical and a human spiritual and all of it, then those things are not completely healed. And so this is one of the ways we run into this a lot in modern evangelical thought is that people really do think sometimes like all that Jesus took in the uh, incarnation was a body. Um, William Lane Craig says as much in his uh, theological positions in uh, Christian Philosophical Worldview for the Christian, I forget the title, his big philosophy book. he says literally that all that all that Christ took on that completed the nature the human nature of Christ was a body. So he already had everything before that. Well, there's all sorts of problems with that, and we've addressed those in the past. So it's not as though these positions have disappeared um, or been reinterpreted or been reappropriated. They, they're they're still around in essentially the same form that they always have. Right, been. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been thinking recently that. In our day, of course, it's more common for people to deny the the, 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 the the deity of Jesus. Man, denying deity just got me tripped up. Yeah. Then it's humanity. But that dualism, and we didn't really talk about Gnosticism yet, but that dualism of, of spirit and body is still really prevalent, but it's just more subtle. So I, I want to throw something at you yeah. because I've, I've observed this, and I've seen this even in my own life. So this idea of exaltation of the spiritual over the physical in kind of how we understand Christian biblical theology, but you know, like Christian science, yeah. which is neither Christian nor science and new age have like a strong bent towards, I think docetism, but anytime we exalt right. the spiritual above the physical, I think we're actually falling prey to the dualism of those philosophies because our bodies yeah. matter. The world matters. And to deny that is to agree more with early Gnostics than the Bible. And so I see this actually yeah. a lot in music. So uh, are you familiar with the yeah. hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus? So mm-hmm. I know maybe this is like anathema to some people, but I sometimes cringe at the, at the chorus of this song because, so if you're not familiar, it's, the chorus is, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I, I get the right. sentiment, I think, of what the hymn writer is trying to say there, that the glory of God through Jesus Christ is so phenomenal that everything else pales in comparison. But what this kind of, I think unjustly emphasizes is that the physical stuff doesn't really matter. That's not as important as what God has created spiritually. And yet our great hope in glory is that God has decided to redeem all things that the creation, the physical stuff, the matter, if you will, matters just as much as the spiritual reality in the sense that God has created them both and wants to bring both, both into their full eschatological glory and rest. So I think sometimes we emphasize the spiritual to such an extent that we just throw away 
our bodies. And I see that a lot in music, but I think that also sometimes just in our attitudes about how we approach things. Yeah, I I run into it all the time where people seem to blame sin almost exclusively on mm, the body. True. Right? Our our orientation towards sin or our propensity to sin um is often tied and the the there's a reasonal or there's a good reason for it that people look at the language in the scripture about the flesh versus right. the spirit. They they see that language and they're misunderstanding what Paul is saying, Paul primarily Paul. And what they think he's saying is that the sinful nature or the the propensity to sin resides in our body. And so what happens when we die is that we escape that sinfulness, we escape that corruption and become a become a pure spirit again. And then somehow in the future if they affirm a bodily resurrection, which usually is sort of like an afterthought for most right. people, somehow that new body we get will not be subject to that corruption. And what I found and and I think this is really interesting is that our anthropology and our eschatology are also in the same way or a similar way that soteriology is tied to Christology. That's a lot of ologies. But our, our doctrine of man, our doctrine of the last things, those things are tied to our understanding of who Christ is such that what we think about those things is either projected onto yes. Christ or derived from what we understand of Christ. So if we have a if we have a docetic eschatology in which we think that our our final estate is going to be sitting on clouds, playing harps, wearing white robes in some sort of eternal disembodied worship service, then we have a tendency to think of Jesus as sort of pure spirit that sort of resides in matter for right. a time. Um, likewise, if we think that the human constitution is essentially spiritual and we sort of live inside of our bodies for now, we also tend to project that onto Christ. And that's why it's so important to get your Christology right and to start with your Christology. Your Christology is a... So we've talked about this pyramid before. And we have these base level doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity, theology proper, um, you know, Christology, pneumatology, and how, how all of those different um, theologies in terms of like actually doctrines about God, how all of those interplay, that's your first level of your pyramid. And then you build things like your soteriology and your doctrine of scripture and some of those other kinds of really significant, important theologies on top of that. And then maybe you get to the top layer, which is something like your eschatology or particulars about ecclesiology. Not that those things aren't important, but less depends on those things than the bottom. But if you get those wrong, you get that bottom wrong, then a lot of times you can't build up to the top of the pyramid correctly. And this is one of those areas. This is why I like having this conversation with you, because it's possible that sometimes we, we might not be aware that that's what we're saying when we think in a particular way. So it's, this is why we want to talk about heresy, because it's not just about, well, let's like kind of in a laboratory, put this in a Petri dish and examine it. We're, we're talking about how when we think about things like your example of just floating around, like putting cream cheese on bagels and playing harps is how we envision heaven. If we're doing that, then the logical outworking is a docetic frame of mind. So even if you've never made that connection right. before, that's the important part of talking about all this. Because the view of embodiment as like the epitome of evil makes the fall of humanity, in my opinion, metaphysical and not moral. That's more of like a right. view from Plato that is the scriptures. Because for Plato, right. the material world and the spiritual world were these distinct and they're hierarchically ordered. So the material was all this illusionary, temporary, imperfect stuff. And the body was the seat of harmful desires and passions. And that was from which the soul right. must be released. The body basically weighed down the corrupt soul. 
And so we need to understand what, what I'm glad you brought this up because you took the words out of my mouth. I'm glad we brought up um, Paul's litany of this works of the flesh, like especially in Galatians, because he's including faults that are both mind and body. So there's physical sins of like fornication, right. drunkenness, but those are listed alongside enmity, discord, like all the other dispositions. So when he's using this right. language of flesh and spirit, he's really denoting these two distinct ways of life. So to follow the flesh is to live according to the standards of the fallen humanity, but to follow the spirits to live according to the standards of God. And both those paths involve the person's entire nature, that body and soul. So yeah. I love what Augustine says about this, if I can quote him, if it's that time in the podcast. So in like, I like his, his Christian <laughs> understanding of sin and human nature. He articulates it by saying, it was not the corruptible flesh that made the soul sinful. It was the sinful soul that made the flesh corruptible. So it, right. there is almost an equal weighting, I think, in our consideration understanding. And we, we put that equal or apply that equal weighting to the flesh and, and in terms of our physical bodies and the spirit, because that's what Jesus did. Like, that's the wonderful thing. Isn't it wonderful yep. to know that the world in which we exist, where like I have fingers and toes and I can go for a run or go for a swim or hang out with my wife or experience the sensation of touch and taste and sound and smell, that all those things God hasn't put in like a disposable wrapper that they're just going to be thrown away and discarded, but that they are actually yeah. part of an eschatological experience that is going to be totally redeemed in such a way that, you know, like our glorification isn't just like spirit glorification. It is in fact like the full consummate glorification yeah. is both bodily and spirit. And I think we just have to be careful about how we emphasize that because it seems particularly super Christian to emphasize the spiritual nature and like spiritual transformation, spiritual regeneration, spiritual glorification above and over or beyond that which is physical. But the testimony of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his death is that he gets after both and makes them both new eventually in the end, yeah. in the final analysis. Yeah. We're getting new, like a totally perfected spirit, but also like a super sweet body. And I feel like we can, we can be yeah. okay with that. Like we'd be unashamed in expressing that. Yeah. So Jesse, um, it sounds like you're <laughs> latching on to some sort of overarching theme that's expressed across the whole Bible. So if I wanted to study more about large scale themes that span the whole breadth of biblical testimony. Are there any resources we can There recommend? are, in fact, some great resources, Tony. We are so good I, at this. I'm so glad you brought this up. I thought you would never <laughs> ask. It makes it less awkward for me to introduce <laughs> the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible from Zondervan, which is an excellent resource that does exactly that. It's a great, it's really a great version of the scripture that emphasizes that whole grand story arc of theology and the redemption of, of the redemption story of God in his people. Yeah. And one of the articles, um, it's not available on the free sample at uh, www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com. But if you go and you request like a sample page, um, you can actually take a look and you'll find uh, Kevin DeYoung has an excellent article in there about sin that, that touches on a lot of these same things, right? Because right. sin is not just a spiritual reality, but it affects and, and comes from our body as well. Um, so there's there's really great articles, lots of full color maps. Um, it's really easy on the eyes, which I know seems like a really corny thing, but the fact is like sometimes you stop reading something because your eyes right. get tired, um, and they've they've got a custom design print that they use to help you to be able to read the Bible longer, which is just amazing. It's a really pretty version of the Bible. I'm just going to put that out there. The text I'm actually looking yeah. at it. The text is really nice. It's it's really wonderful to read. And I do want to echo what you said. A lot of times, you know, you'll pick up a study Bible 
and the resources in there are a little bit chintzy or like the added material is not really that weighty. The articles, and there's 28 of them throughout the entire Bible there, they are like legit articles. Like they're, they're, and they're, yeah. not, they're kind of things that you can read once and then I guarantee you'll go back to because they really are wonderful explanations of really kind of dense theological topics that allow them to come within arm's reach. So that is not just a throwaway resource. It's actually, I think it adds really something to the scripture itself. Yeah. And there's also like 20,000 uh, study notes. So it's got a full complement of the normal kinds of notes you'd expect from any study Bible. So if you were looking at a passage like uh Galatians 5, where it's talking about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. Um, there's lots of helpful study notes to help you understand that when Paul says flesh, he's not just talking about the body, right. but he's talking about this this whole life oriented away from the spirit. So check it out. We're going to do a contest. We're going to give away one of six copies. Um, so you have a pretty good chance of winning. Six is a, a pretty good number. So you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest and you can enter it. And you should check out uh, www.whatisbiblicaltheology.com for more information about this great resource. And let me say this, especially if you're the kind of person that is really interested, hungry and thirsty for understanding God's word better, there is, I think, no greater first resource than having a really good study Bible. It's it's yeah. a wonderful place to start because like you said, when you're looking at a particular passage and really want to get not just a sense of context, but what these words actually mean in the mind of the, in the intent of the author as they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit, this is a good first resource. And I feel bad because so many people will look at a study Bible and kind of say, well, that's not a, a real resource to use in understanding the scriptures. And that's just really yeah. not true. This is, and this is a good example yeah. of something that is really helpful in growing faith and growing fruit of the spirit and growing our love for Christ. Yeah. So Jesse, since we're getting back into our topic, let's do like a quick and dirty uh, review of Gnosticism and uh, Mon not Montanism. There's too many There's heresies. There's so many heresies. What am I thinking of? Manichaeism. <laughs> Which sounds like it's a pasta to me. Manichaeism. Yeah. Well, you put some mozzarella on top of your yeah, Manichaeism. It, at least the beginning part sounds like it. It have like to be it. like manic manichaeism. Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking of manicotti, and that's what happened. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, so. The reason we're going to go through these quick is because although they use a lot of Christian terminology, they don't really represent a Christian heresy the same way that something like Apollinarianism or Arianism right. does. And the reason I say that is because these are theologies that didn't originate within the church, but theologies that represent a sort of syncretism with groups outside of the church that saw Christian language or Christianity and appropriated it to themselves. So we might do episodes on these in the future to talk about them, but they don't really fit in the main Right. things. But they're connected enough to this concept of docetism that we really need to touch on them. So Gnosticism doesn't represent any one particular stream. It's not like there's a, a recognized body of Gnosticism, but Gnosticism is a group of uh, belief systems. And the main thing they have in common is this idea of a, of a strict dualism. So there's a, there's a, a matter and there is spirit. And usually it's because there's there's the one God and then there's like these evil or corrupt sort of under gods or demiurges, they call them. And those demiurges are what created uh, matter. And so Gnosticism holds this idea that matter is evil and uh, spirit is good. And so they take things like the Logos and they incorporate it into their system as sort of one among many. 
And what happens with that then is that Jesus is the Logos in incarnate, but not incarnate in an actual sense. He's the Logos come to earth, representing himself as a man in order to try to bring about some sort of um, spiritual awakening or spiritual enlightenment in, in the people that he ministers to or that he preaches right. to. Yeah, and the big result of that presupposition that there is that matter basically is inherently evil and the spirit is good is that Gnostics believe basically anything done in the body, even the grossest sin, has no meaning because real life exists in the spirit right. realm only. So that's obviously yeah. problematic. And, you know, of course, like yeah. gnosis from the Greek word from which it's derived means to know. So another major tenet would be that there is a claim to possess an elevated knowledge, this quote unquote higher truth, but it's known only to a certain right. few. And so Gnostics would claim to possess this higher knowledge, but it's not from the Bible. It's acquired from some kind of mystical right. higher plane of existence. And so they would see themselves yeah. as, as privileged class because they're elevated above everybody else because they have this higher, deeper knowledge of God. So what's interesting about this, and I like how you said it was kind of syncretistic, is this idea that this is just not biblical. It's not, right. this is totally imported from outside the realm of the Bible. Right. And so like a modern day example of that would be like um, the... Man, my mind is blanking. Leah Remini. Scientology. Scientology yeah. So like Scientology, you know, we have this big kick for some reason at every family gathering that we just wanted to sit down and watch like every documentary on <laughs> That's Scientology true. we could find. And and we were watching this and I don't I don't remember if you were sitting there or not, but there was a point where I literally sat up and was like, This is just Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And and it is, right? So Scientology basically says that we can overcome every evil in the world by simply un clearing away the spiritual clutter in our right. lives and, and literally clearing it away. Like they call it going clear when you've kind of gotten rid of all this stuff. And that elevates us up this sort of scale of being until we've reached this point where we sort of rejoin the spiritual reality. And that's literally just Gnosticism and Scientology. I hope I don't have people like come into my house filming me now. Scientologists <laughs> get all this. Um, Leah Remini, if you hear this, come on our podcast. But, um, Scientology is essentially the same thing. And in the same way that um, Gnosticism came in and took over Christian language and Christian concepts, Scientology has done the same thing, right? So they call themselves the Church of Scientology. So they've they've taken Christian concepts and they've used it in their system, even though there's no common origin. Right. Scientology developed entirely apart from Christianity. It literally developed be on the basis of like a science fiction novel that someone wrote. Yeah. Ron Hubbard. Right. Yep. And so the other one that I want to touch on quickly is called Manichaeism. And this is, you'll, you'll read a lot about this if you read um, Augustine, because Augustine actually was uh, in this cult before he became a Christian. And Manichaeism holds a lot of the same um, kind of principles as um, Gnosticism does. But what's interesting about Manichaeism is that it's not so much knowledge that frees you, but it's actually like eating certain kinds of fruit which is really strange, but there was a certain kind of fruit that you could eat. Um, I think it was like a melon, but, and it would, it would sort of like open you up and let your spirit escape from your body. So Manichaeism holds this same kind of strict dualism, this matter body thing. Um, but what I find is really interesting is that that shares a lot of parallels to some of the kinds of like cultic practices we see around certain health, right? Foods, right. Like the Daniel diet. Right. Rick Warren puts this Daniel diet out there, which is really ironic because Rick Warren is overweight. But 
um, he puts this Daniel diet out there and markets it as though eating this particular diet somehow will free your spirit up to have better success in life. It'll, it'll allow you to achieve your purposes. More. Right. And that's a problem. So, so like I said, I don't want to spend too much more time on that. We probably will come back in a future episode on that. But a lot of the sort of fad things we see, the weird new age spiritual stuff, um, they rest on this sort of form of um, Gnosticism or Manichaeism. But they take Christian language and they sort of baptize their system into it. And what's interesting is that when that starts to fuse with Christianity, modern Christianity, we start to see this not or this docetism come full right. force. So, so what are other? Um, do you can you think of other modern situations where we have this kind of docetism present? I don't know. I think what you covered was really great. I didn't even think about kind of the the issue with food, but that is something that I think continues to be an influence by this perspective. And that's again, why we're, I mean, we're, we're not experts in any respect with all that stuff, but only to say that we have to be careful about how we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Even with something that seems like very innocuous with food. You know, I appreciate that clearly this was the kind of thing that was still present, like in the early church, which, you know, most would say, or many theologians would say like, first John, you know, chapter four, when John's writing that he's addressing exactly what you're talking about, this unhealthy or totally inappropriate understanding of the body and the spirit. And you can see like most of those views that you just expressed, basically a lot of them have their genesis in, you know, platonic thought. And they right. seem very smart, intellectual, and very reasonable to many people because there is this sensibility that you know, our bodies are very different than our spirits and those two things are separated and therefore they have different you know, kind of purviews and in, in different kind of existence. But, you know, when John writes in first John four, by this, you know, the spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So I always thought it was really interesting that in this particular statement, he says specifically in the flesh, so there's something right. important there that we need to kind of keep circling back around to, whether we're talking about a diet and that's somehow releasing us or we're talking about like an, is it like an O-meter? Is that what the Scientologists use? I want to say E-meter, yeah. but I want—I feel like it was O. But I don't know. It, basically all we're getting is philosophic thought repackaged in some kind of spiritual way. And I remember when we were spending hours watching that Lee Remini documentary <laughs> together, one of the things, I forget if you and I talked about this, but one of the things I found both disturbing and just totally baffling was the fact that so many of their buildings actually have emblazoned on them a cross. Yeah. And so I actually went and like looked it up because I was like, clearly they don't believe in Jesus, not even in like a docetic way, but I think like altogether. Right. And they had some explanation for like, you know, like the four points represented like I don't know, some kind of principles, yeah. but it is just like really just straight stealing from kind of this sensibility about, you know, kind of qualified religious practice and belief and just repackaging it in Gnosticism. Yeah. So the way that I see Gnos um, docetism kind of most prominent in our modern context, um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. So we did an episode that was essentially about this, but I want to come at it at a slightly different angle. So if you go back and okay. listen to episode uh, 45, which is called The Genuine Humanity of Christ, and Jesse and I talked about how the miracles of Christ 
were not um, somehow like Jesus tapping into his divine nature, but that that right. he was acting as a human prophet, doing the same kinds of miracles to validate his ministry that people like Moses and Elijah did. But where I also see this play out is there seems to be this sort of underlying thought process in a lot of Christian thinking that the reason that Jesus didn't sin, the way that he was able to live a, a life apart from sin and without actually sinning is because he's God. And what right. that does is that robs the whole point of the incarnation in Christ's sinless life, right? Because when we're talking about covenant theology, Christ had to accomplish that as the second Adam in order for it to be applied to us as the yes. sons of Adam who need to be re redeemed. So there's this undercurrent in a lot of evangelicalism that actually ends up with us kind of in a hopelessness. Like, how could I ever hope to live a righteous life if if Jesus couldn't even do it apart from being God? Well, I'm never going to be God, right. so what am I going to do about it? And there's some squirrely ways that people get around it. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on I that. totally agree. I've thought about that a lot since we originally talked about that, and I see that even in my own tendency, because what we want to do, like we spoke about, is make Jesus into a superhero. And that's kind of, right. I think, our natural proclivity because we, we want to respect the fact that he is truly God. So again, we're kind of defending essentially the nature of God in a way that we don't need to. So for instance, some time ago, I heard a sermon about the, the couple of gospel passages in which Jesus is sleeping in the boat on the lake, and then he awakes to calm the storm. And the person who was giving that sermon made the contention that, well, the reason that... Jesus was able to sleep so soundly when the disciples who were fishermen themselves had experience in those types of situations were saying that they were going to drown was because Jesus, because he was God, knew what was going to happen. He foreknew, foreordained, foresaw all that stuff. And for me, that was an example of entirely robbing the Jesus of that situation of trusting in the Father by faith. I mean, we're saying right. that he, was, he had the, the full measure of the Spirit but when we even make a slight change in that narrative, when we tell it in that way, then we're doing exactly what you said. And that is, we're robbing us of any hope. You know, it takes away the fact that, you know, when Paul says, you know, when you are tempted, look for the out that God's going to give you. Uh, we, we tend to like push even those passages aside. Or when Moses says like, this law is not too high that you're not able to attain it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. We're totally stripping all that away. And so it is a problem, even though we think we're putting Jesus high and lifted up by saying, well, he basically was able to do all these things because he was God. Yes, truly God. We're affirming, yes, truly God. But then we never stop and say, also truly man. And right. it, that is the beauty of the Christian religion is that it's not like Buddhism or Christian Scientology or as Christian science or Scientology or any of that stuff, there is actual power through Christ to that is transformative in our lives here and now. And beyond that, which is beautiful, we do actually have this intercessor, this high priest that knows what it is like to be like us. Like I, I was thinking yeah. this week that the humility of Christ, the humiliation of Christ comes kind of in this trifold way. There's the incarnation that he would kind of send to us. There's the fact that he would live like us. And then there's the fact that he died in ignominy. And this idea in particular in the middle there, that he would come and live like us. I was just totally blown away this week thinking, you know, if, if you've known somebody or you yourself experienced what it is to, you know, to struggle with, say, with like a chronic illness or chronic pain or, or some kind of physical deficiency, like the daily trial of just getting up and being in that environment is so difficult. And it made me think yeah. what it, might, it must have been like for Christ who was truly God to come and condescend and to live every day 
in the, the full limitation of what it means to be human, just that he would lovingly do that for us, blew me away. Yeah. And when we get in these docetic frames of mind, we are totally stripping that away. And it doesn't just do damage to Christ. It does actual damage to us as well. I mean, that's my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right on there because, you know, we, we have this tendency to either bring Christ so far down to our level that he's just another dude, right? Liberalism. Oh boy. Or we have this tendency to elevate Christ to this station that we could never achieve, that there's no way God, even God could bring us there. Right. Right. And I don't even know what you call that, but, um, but that just isn't the reality of the Bible, right? We will someday, this is the whole point. I'm reading um, Resurrection and Redemption by Richard Gaffin Jr. And he, the whole thing is this, is this discussion about how Christ's resurrection and our resurre- resurrection are one resurrection. So it's not just that Christ is raised, therefore we also will be raised. It's that Christ was raised, therefore we who are united to Christ are already raised, And that's, you know, that's specifically looking at the resurrection, but everything that was true for Christ in his, in his human life, including his resurrection and all that that entails, all the glorification as, as the son of man, as the second Adam that that entails, all of that is true for us too, which is why in Ephesians it says we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. right on. So it's important for us not to rob Christ of his humanity, because if we rob Christ of his humanity, then we rob ourselves of the inheritance that we share exactly. with him. And I think that's probably the best place for us to leave this episode, because what docetism does, if I was to boil it all down, is it robs suffering of its meaning because all of Christ's suffering was an illusion. Right. And so the suffering that we have, which which Paul all over the place and Jesus and Peter and all over the New Testament says that our suffering has value because in it we share in the suffering of Christ. All of that loses its value. Amen. So that's just that's another example of of modern docetism would be things like the prosperity gospel, yep. the health and wealth gospel, where where all we got to do is realize that we're not really sick and we won't be sick anymore. Right. Right. That's just nonsense. Sometimes people are really sick. Right. Right. But it also robs us of our salvation because Christ could not atone for our sins because he didn't really die. He didn't really make atonement. He didn't really sacrifice anything. Right. And then lastly, it robs us of our inheritance as now the the co-heirs of the eschatological son of God, right? Christ comes as the second Adam and he reheads, right? Or Irenaeus called it recapitulation. He reheads our fallen race and everyone who is in him follows him into glorification. But if all that in him means is that we are also somehow freed from our spiritual or from our, our fleshly cage bodies, then, then we, everyone receives their reward at death. Right. Right. If suffering is illusory and all that is needed for salvation is to escape the body, then that's where you get people like suicide cults. And that doesn't in that framework. And this is pretty extreme in that framework. Consistent. Those things actually make perfect sense. Right. The hail Bob comet people that thought they were going to kill themselves and go to parrot, ride the comet to paradise in their spirit forms. If, if Jesus wasn't truly human, then all that is perfectly logical. Right. It, it's perfectly logical. So this really is much more important than people think. And I think it, it bears 
taking time to investigate and really look at where the church has come and where the church has gone off the rails, almost all of the major errors that we see in the Middle Ages regarding how the the church went off the rails soteriologically, this creeping in of Mary worship and the cult of the saints, all of that stuff is tied to this misunderstanding of docetism. And it really is was a problem. And even though we don't struggle with it as much now in the modern church, um, it's still something that we have to keep an eye on because it'll only be a matter of time before it comes back around. Jesus shed real blood to pay the real price for our real sin in order to grant us real forgiveness. Exactly. And real resurrection. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that probably does it. Jesse, uh, we got a question cast coming up. How does people get a hold of us to leave some voicemails? So call 607-444-2767. Bros. Yeah. The last four digits spell bros. Just to reiterate, in case you yeah. just think that Tony and I always just say bros after we say the phone number. Yeah. We're con- contractually obligated. <laughs> I-, I wrote the contract, but I contractually obligated. Yeah, we're we're basically the theological podcast of CrossFit. Are we though? Well, in the sense that, well, two ways actually. Here we go. One way in that this is some serious exercise for your theological acumen in mind, right? I mean, there it's, you go. It's muscle confusion. We're we're all over the place. We're talking about different things. <laughs> It's, you know, we're really getting after it. But second, only because like with, with small exception, all the people that I know who do CrossFit and they're very passionate about it, use the word bro a lot. That's true. That's true. I think they're contractually obligated once you sign up that you have to refer to almost everybody who's a dude as bro. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the uh, membership requirements yeah i'm pretty sure you have, to, you have to say bro after every set so like you jump up onto those boxes and you're like bro bro you have to do it it's it's the way it is yeah again i have a couple of friends that like every especially if it's a question like what's going on bro yeah. what do you have to do today bro it's always i mean it's friendly but i want to be like yeah keep that to yourself and it's like an ex like an exclamation too like they'll be like bro <laughs> you got to see this movie it's so great exactly like that we could do this all day yes all right well i think that just about does it jesse i'm glad you're back i missed you last week i miss being here too this was great let's do it again how about next week next week yeah same time same channel next week let's do it all right until next time honor everyone love the brotherhood what if i'm